Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Okay, for today, I wanted to um, talk about a, a message, um, and I want to talk to our, our church next Sunday morning about this as well. The title of today's message is called God Speaks Fluent People. God Speaks Fluent People. Last year, um, I introduced a metaphor that we're going to continue um, in the life of our church. In fact, um, it's in our session um, in New, Welcome to New Spring series session where we're talking about what does it mean to be a faithful church. And the metaphor is the fifth act. Uh, do you guys remember that? I, I bang on about the fifth act all the time. Um, from Tom Wright, he looks at the biblical narrative and he says like a really easy, accessible way to look at the Bible story is to think about the Bible story in five different acts. You know, in Genesis, like one to three, there's the creation. Uh, God creates a, a good world. Like, do you know the world is good? Some people think the world's bad. The world's actually good. It's a great world. I'm, I'm loving the world. It's a good world. Act two is the fall where everything goes really, really wrong. Things go wrong. There's a rebellion among humanity. There's also a rebellion among um, the principalities and powers and all that kind of stuff. So that happens. And then there's the story. The third act is the story about Israel. And it starts with Abraham and it goes all the way to the end of Malachi. Act number four is Jesus. And act number five is the church. That's us. And the idea was, when um, the, the metaphor is that because we are Act 5 people, we haven't got the entire script. We've got like a bit of the beginning and we've got a little bit of the end, but we actually have to improvise faithfully in the middle as the church, which means that we're going to get a lot of stuff really good, but we're also going to get some stuff not so good. But the only way you can actually be a faithful improviser is actually understand the narrative, understand the story. So we need to know Acts 1, 2, 3, 4. And if you've been part of our church, we have been going deep into the story of God on purpose. So what I wanted to do for um, the next couple of weeks as we're leading into February, I wanted to pay a little bit of attention to the beginning of Act number 5, which is actually amply called the Book of Acts. Um, so I want to, like, so I hope we don't get too confused. But I wanted to actually talk a little bit about the beginning of Act Five because the beginning of Act Five actually tells us and shows us the trajectory of the church. And I think that over the last two thousand years, sometimes we've actually lost the trajectory of the church who was supposed to be. The beginning of Act Five actually tells us the genesis of the church, and um, that is something which I really, really would. Um, Personally, I want to get a better grasp of that uh, myself, but I want to get a better grasp of it as, um, as a people of God, and I want to start off on the right foot. So um, we're going to start in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, and um, we're going to go through this story which happens. And Act number, uh, number 5, as the disciples start to walk out um, being the church, to be honest, they seem to start off on the wrong foot. That's what people do, right? So Act 1 verse 6 starts like this. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? You know what? From a distance of 2,000 years, I'm living in Perth, Western Australia. I've got over 2,000 years worth of church fathers and theology and all that. I look at these young disciples of Jesus and I'm thinking, oh, man. 
with this again? Like, haven't you guys? I mean, like, like, this is like after the resurrection and Jesus has been with them for 40 days. I mean, like, I'm thinking for 40 days you've been with Jesus. He's been teaching you some things. And at the end of 40 days, Jesus is about to, like, ascend to go to heaven. The last thing you're going to ask him before he goes again, Jesus, are you going to restore our kingdom right now? I would have thought, like, that's what I mean. Like, from someone distance from 2,000 years, it's like, Oh my goodness, like, like, haven't we been over this question before with Jesus and hasn't he like, refused to answer this question previously? And that's exactly what seems to happen in this scenario because Jesus doesn't answer this question again. You know? But I think that it's something really important for us to understand when we're talking about being five, Act 5 people and looking at the very beginning of the church is that the gospel is actually birthed in a very real place at a very real time and it's birthed in the midst of real people's concerns. Real people have had concerns. The reason why these disciples are asking this question is because they've got some legitimate concerns. And they're with the resurrected Jesus. And that means something because it's not every day you're hanging out with someone who's come back from the dead. You know what I'm saying? That kind of means something. Jesus, he's saying he's the king. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's bursting. He's breaking in. He's breaking forth. He, he, he looks at himself. He's Yahweh himself. God's presence here. Resurrected. Resurrection time has come. The new age has come. That means something. And in the midst of it meaning something, these young disciples have real concerns. So they ask him this question. And I think it's important for us to understand that the book of Acts, the beginning of Act number five, is happening at a time of empire. It's happening at the time of the Roman Empire. The disciples are born into this period of time and the gospel is born into this period of time. And at this moment, the disciples, their imagination is infused with what this means that Jesus is resurrected. They still have infused in their imaginations the dream of military conquest. They still have this happening in their minds. They still have this idea that we need to be victorious. We need to actually, what they have in mind is that we still got the Romans here. We need to kick them out. And the way we're going to kick them out is because we're going to use some military, focus, uh, military might. And we're going to actually use the sword. Because for them, I don't know if you know any of Israel's history, but for them, their nearest reference point of an established kingdom had been the Maccabean revolt. And this was a Jewish rebellion led by the Maccabees, at the, uh, which was against a Seleucid empire, another empire, and against foreign power and, uh, and foreign influence on the Jewish life. So that's the most recent idea or event that they've had in their mind when it comes to the kingdom of God being established. And the most recent un like, like reference point to what it means to actually have a Messiah, okay? And it's from that starting point that the disciples ask a resurrected Jesus their question, a question that pertains to their national identity. And the question is pretty simple, basically saying like, okay, Jesus, when are we going to rule our land? When's our time coming? And it just simply lets us know that the gospel was birthed within an already established empire. God sneaks into history. We celebrated this a couple of weeks ago with Christmas. Can you believe it was only a couple of weeks ago, Christmas? God sneaks into his story, into history. He, the announcement of the kingdom of Jesus or the gospel snuck into an already established Roman Empire. And these young followers of Jesus, they have been shaped entirely by empire. You see, for centuries, 
Other empires have literally had their boot on the neck of Israel. We have no idea what that's like. Could you imagine for centuries, other dominant empires, other dominant nations, like absolutely, like, like that picture of they have just got their boot on your neck and they are just grinning and they are just like, you will submit to whatever we tell you to do. That is what they've been experiencing for centuries and centuries. And what happens with empires is that empires, any empire, including the empire of today, the empires of today. Do you realize that we are actually currently still in an empire? Empires already exist, right? Empires, they always have an objective. The objective of of any single empire is to shape you and to shape me into their own image. That's the purpose of of an empire. An empire will shape you into its image. The Roman Empire, at the time, it seems, like, it seems like nothing to us, but the Roman Empire, they had invented cities. That was their great invention. They looked at humanity and said the epitome of humanity is cities. So they went around the world and they built cities. They established cities. And you think, oh, wow, that's cool. I love Perth. I love Sydney. I love New York. The problem is that when you go and you actually establish cities all over the known world, what happens to people who have land? What happens to farmers? What happens, like, 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 what happens that people get displaced, property gets stolen, right? People lose income. People lose identity. Because when an empire comes to town, an empire's objective is to shape you and me into its image. That's what happens. It's exactly the same today. So the presence of empire is something that needs to be acknowledged if we're to understand the book of Acts and to understand how our story as a church actually does begin. And I would dare say that to actually have an understanding, at least an acknowledgement of empire, needs to be acknowledged if we're to understand what God is actually doing in 2022 as well. Because the beginning of our story as the church of Jesus Christ lets us know that the trajectory of the gospel is set from within Empire it comes from within empire. Within empire. You guys are with me, aren't you? Yeah. This is not like too deep for like a Sunday evening. It's like Dave, like just like, yeah, you know what I'm saying. And they ask this question, okay, Jesus, when are we going to be rulers? Completely appropriate question for a group of people living in an empire. I think it's a pretty human question, you know. I wonder what kind of, I wonder what kind of questions we ask Jesus in light of the empire we live in, right? Because empires shape the question, unless, of course, you're understanding that Jesus seems to have a completely different agenda, which is so frustrating. So what kind of questions are we asking Jesus? What what does our prayer life look like? What does our coming together kind of look like in light of the empire? Because gospel trajectory always comes out of empire, you see. It changes empire, but it comes out of empire. And we're always shaped from empire. So the beginning of the gospel is birthed within an empire. And the question that the disciples ask has everything to do with power. Power. When's our kingdom going to be established? When are we going to rule our land? And I'll tell you how we know it's all about power because Jesus actually responds to the question and he talks immediately about power. Acts 1 verse 7 to 8. Jesus replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The disciples have been asking about power. And Jesus says, Yeah, you are going to get power 
That was actually what was undergirding that question. Jesus, when is our kingdom going to be established? Jesus, when are we going to rule this land? Because the gospel, what's happened right now, we are still in the midst of empire. And there's a question that comes out of that and has everything to do with power. And this is not the first time. This is why I said, like, we smirk and we look at it. I'm thinking, these disciples, you've been through, you're going around the mulberry bush over and over and over and over again. We have, like, at least one other example. We've got many others. But, but there's one example which I think is just incredible. But two disciples who assumed, and this is before the resurrection, they assumed that they had access to power because they were walking with Jesus. And in Luke chapter 9, verse 51 to 55, just listen to this story and just in your mind, just sort of try to understand what kind of power they actually thought they had access to. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messages ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. Okay, they didn't get on too well with Samaritans, right, Jewish people? But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem, right? Samaritans hate Jerusalem. Verse 54, when James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? Can you imagine that? Like seriously, I mean, this is like, they legitimately thought because they're walking with Jesus, they could just literally call down fire from heaven and kill people. They thought they had that kind of access to Jesus, right? Crazy. And then Jesus rebukes them. So they've already got this power thing going through their head. This idea of power has already been like there. These, these fellas, they get, their, they get their mum to come to Jesus. And their mum comes to Jesus and say, look, Lord, I need to ask you a question. He says, okay, what do you want to ask? Like, like, when your kingdom comes, I want my sons to sit on your right and left hand. Power. Everyone's talking about power. These guys are talking about power. All right? The question is all about power, but it is a certain type of power that the disciples are asking for. Because the only power they've seen in their entire life is the power of empire. The only power they've ever seen is actually having another nation with their boot on their neck. That's the only power they've ever, like, like they've kind of experienced. The stories, the heroes, the most recent heroes, uh, like from the, the Maccabean revolt, guess what happened? Guess what kind of power that is? That's power of the sword. That's military power. That's killing people kind of power. That's their reference point. They're obviously, they're talking about this kind of power and what is the kind of power that will actually establish their kingdom and what is the kind of power that will actually cause them to rule their own land. Well, it is empire power. That's the kind of power they're talking about. Isn't it amazing if you actually um, investigate some Christian groups around the world, guess what kind of power they are still wanting to hold? Empire power. It's incredible. Anyway, but this is actually the starting point, and I think that makes it quite human. Okay, so I don't want to, I don't want to rag on them because, to be honest, you and I kind of go to Jesus sometimes in our prayer life, and we want certain type of power because we want a kind of power where we're able to control things that are happening all around us, don't we? Or is that just me? Oh yeah, you too. Okay. Give me power, God, so I can control my surrounding tangible world. Give me power, God, so I can use it in the same manner that this empire around me is using power. Because empires always use power in certain ways. Always do. That's why I'm saying the gospel's trajectory comes out of 
empire. And empires always use power in certain ways. And if we do not recognize and acknowledge that there is still empire dynamics in play, we will think that we're on the side of the Lord and then really we're kind of like on the side of empire. Because power is such a certain thing. The disciples are asking for the kind of power that is a kind of power which is over people. Have you ever experienced someone or a group of people where they want power and they like execute power and their power actually is like over you? Have you ever experienced that? That's empire power. Have you ever made to feel like someone's trying to manipulate you? They're trying to control you. They're making you, they're, they're, they're kind of like, it's, it's an abusive kind of thing. That's the kind of power they're wanting. They're wanting the kind of power to kick the Romans out. They want the kind of power to subdue, subdue the Romans, and they want the kind of power to rule over them. So Acts chapter 1, the disciples ask for power. In Acts chapter 2, guess what Jesus does? Or guess what God does? He answers the prayer, which I think is so phenomenal and so frustrating. And any honest read of the book of Acts, you will see that this is the most frustrating book because in every single chapter, God is making his people do things that they do not want to do. Every single time you look at an answer to God, he is answering it in a way that the disciples didn't want it to be answered. You know, it sometimes makes me think we come to God in prayer meetings and we're asking for this. It's like, really? Because you may be asking for this, but it's going to come in a completely different way. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 to 4. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames of tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. This morning I was speaking to the church, and I was talking about when God comes. The very moment where God comes in Pentecost, guess what? He's coming and he's described as fire and wind. And if you know your old uh, your Israel scriptures, it's talking about God coming from fire and wind. And the only thing with fire and wind is that fire and wind is completely uncontrollable, isn't it? We should know that we are very, very familiar with bushfires, right? You get fire coming and you add wind to that and that sucker's going to go all over the place. And the other thing of wind and fire is that wind and fire will literally touch absolutely everything. You cannot stop it from touching everything. So when God comes the very first time, he comes like wind and fire. He comes, he's not controlled and he can touch absolutely everything. And yet we say, God, come. are you really ready for God to come? Because when he comes, he will touch everything and he won't even apologize for it. And the great thing we know is that God has a good character. He's smarter than us. He's wiser than us. He has a great plan. We're part of his family so that when he does come and things start to disorient us and he starts touching things that we don't want him to touch, he starts going to places where we say, God, you are not allowed to go there, but he goes there anyway. We know he's still good. Isn't that right? We still know he's good. So the request of power over empire has been met with a response and the answer. And the answer is power, but a completely different type of power. And this is how the story of the church, this is how act number five begins. It's not the kind of power that the disciples requested. And that is so annoying, right? I remember all the prayers I prayed coming into this church being a senior pastor, you know, 
Every single prayer has been answered, and not one of them has been answered the way I wanted. Not one of them. Not one of them. But every prayer has been answered. (laughs) The book of Acts constantly shows God responding in ways that disappoint expectations. We're just going to have to get used to that. That's what God does. From verse 5. At that, time, they were, uh, at that time, there were devoted Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own language being spoken by believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native language, our own mother tongue. Okay. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, province of Asia, Phygra, Pamphylia, Egypt, and areas of Libya and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own language about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. I mean, it seems amazing to me that all these people, something odd is really happening, right? All these things are happening. And the question that they're asking is, what does this mean? As followers of Jesus Christ, as a church, how many times do we go to the book of Acts and this event happens? How many times do we actually said, okay, this is the genesis. This is the beginning of the church. What does it mean? Because obviously the answer to that really impacts on the trajectory of the church. And the trajectory of of the church in the book of Acts has a lot to do to being faithful Act 5 people in an Act 5 church. Doesn't that make sense? It makes sense, doesn't it? But what we have here is the unfolding moment in the book of Acts. From this moment, everything else unravels. Everything else kind of comes. This is the moment. Um, It's this moment. This is the moment for Act 5 people. Listen to um, one New Testament scholar. He's an African-American, brilliant, brilliant man. But he made this comment on this passage. He says this, The miracle of Pentecost is less in the hearing and much more in the speaking. Disciples speak in the mother tongue of others, not by their own design, but by the Spirit's desire. Of course, they didn't want to speak. They wanted to kick them out. They didn't want to start speaking their language, right? The new wine has been poured out on those unaware of just how deeply they thirsted. Power has come, a different kind of power. But power has come not to kick people out, but to gather people in. Power has come not to stand over people, but to stand beside people. Power has come not to exclude people, but to enable the disciples to speak other nations' mother tongue, their native language. And as this scholar says, this is the Holy Spirit's desire. This simply has to let us know that God speaks fluent people doesn't matter what kind of people you are. doesn't matter what kind of person you are. He speaks fluent people. His desire was to speak fluent people. If you're Italian, God speaks your language. If you're Egyptian, God speaks your language. If you're Indian, praise God, he speaks the language. If you're Jewish, God speaks your language. Guess what? If you're a computer geek, God speaks your language. If you're a teenager, 
God still speaks your language. If you're an electrician, if you're male, if you're female, how many females are happy that God speaks your language? Because there have been portions of our church history that have kind of like tried to tell us otherwise. No, God speaks your language. Like, guess what? If you're confused, do you reckon God, like people, like when people get confused, do you reckon God speaks their language? Absolutely. What about when people are just so certain about life and you look at them and say, man, you're such a God still speaks your language. God speaks your language. What about when you're disappointed? God speaks your language. And when you're optimistic, God speaks your language. When you're broken, God speaks your language. When you're despondent, God speaks your language. When you've had a win, guess what? God speaks your language. Guess what? When you have a couple of losses in life, God speaks your language. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you start. It doesn't matter where you're from. God speaks fluent people. And if God speaks fluent people, the church should speak fluent people. And that's the point. That's the point. God answers, you want power? I'm going to give you power. Man, I'm going to give you power. But it's not power over people. It is power for people. Different kind of power. Different kind of power. Because understand this. The Spirit comes, pours out His power, not so that the other nation starts speaking Aramaic. Okay, that's a bit of a kick in the gut as a church. Because how often do we expect the world, other nations, other people groups to speak our language? Right? The genesis of the church does not begin with other people groups speaking the church's language. It starts with these disciples speaking the language of other people groups. This is the genesis of the church. You want to be Act 5 people? You want to be an Act 5 church? In a couple of weeks, like, I want to talk about the... Um, the Ethiopian eunuch. He would be known as someone on the, who comes from the ends of the earth in that known world, but also someone who comes on this blurry terrain of identity as well. I, like, like just think about that, a eunuch. What's your identity? And yet he is caught up in the gospel. Do you reckon that story speaks to our current cultural moment where there is a blurring of identities and the church is like, we'll stay here, but the Holy Spirit says, no, you go and attach yourself to his chariot. Gee, it's challenging stuff, eh? Challenging, challenging stuff. I think that's just an incredible story. No, the Spirit doesn't come to pour out power so that other nations speak Aramaic. He opens the disciples' mouth so they speak the mother tongue, the native language of other nations. God speaks fluent people no matter where people come from. That's how the church begins, guys. That's how it begins. To speak someone's language is a deeply intimate thing. Deeply, deeply intimate thing. It speaks of knowing and belonging to this group of people. 2010, Andrew and I did what a lot of um, young marrieds do before they have children. We did a European holiday. It was great. It was awesome. We had this great idea because we were going throughout Europe and we thought, you know, a great idea. What we should do is learn um, French. Learn French. So we bought a couple of courses and like for myself, let me tell you, I, I, I got into lesson one. Did not start lesson two. 
did not start it. Because to be honest, I was just interested in visiting France. I was not really interested in engaging. One of my really, really good friends from high school, um, he has um, spent years learning Balinese. Balinese, right? And it has actually meant that um, he's had many, many lessons, and not just lessons um, with the language, a lot of lessons with culture. A lot of lessons with culture. He's had many, many visits. He loves visiting. Many, many visits. He's had many meals eating together, eating with families, being together. He has many, many relationships and so much, so much love. He got past lesson one, way past lesson one, because his intent wasn't just to go visit. His intent was to actually be part of this people. Because to learn someone's language is a very, very intimate thing, especially if you're learning someone's mother tongue. If you're learning someone's mother tongue, that means you're in their house and you get all the in-jokes, right? You know the intimate kind of conversations. You understand what's happening. Knowing someone's mother tongue is very different to just kind of just like kind of just knowing, okay, that's like how you say one and that's how you say two and that's how you say three. And how incredible that the Holy Spirit is poured out and we bang on all about it, especially us charismatics, speaking in tongues, speaking in tongues. No, no, no. The very first thing that happens is that the disciples of Jesus Christ are empowered with power so that they can speak. And what do they speak? They tell of the glories of God in the mother tongue of the other nations. Jesus says, you are going to receive power and you'll be my witnesses from Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts actually shows that the disciples start from this point and they do go to the ends of the earth, but the ends of the earth also come to them. There's this toing and froing that happens from the very, very beginning. Act 5, people. What does it mean to be witnesses? Act, um, let me read 7 and 8. Jesus replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They are not for you to know. So in other words, like, none of your business. How many times does Jesus say, it's none of your business? Like, go, just do what you're supposed to do, none of your business. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, through Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And when this power comes, in from verse 6 of chapter 2, when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own language being spoken by believers. They were completely amazed. How can, uh, how can, um, how can this be? These people come from Galilee. And what they were speaking was the praises of God. What does it mean to be witnesses? It doesn't just mean that you can speak the language of other people group. You actually have to have something to say. Witnesses, I don't know. I just think that we've got this idea of like, like evangelism and all this kind of stuff, and we really don't know what that means. To be a witness, number one, means that you and I are to carry the real history of life with Jesus. We are to be master storytellers. If you think about elders in any cultural group, think about Aboriginal elders. What do they do? They carry story. They carry story of your people, right? And what do they do? They tell and they retell it to generations. They are master story people. All ancient people have master storytellers. We have elders. 
What does it mean to be a witness when we go out? We are to tell the story of Jesus. It's going to be very hard to be a witness and evangelize if we do not know the story of Jesus. If we don't know act number four, how can we be faithful in act number five, in other words? You've got to be. And the other thing of being a witness, we are also a witness to the divine presence of God, the Holy Spirit working in and through us. We are people who have given room to the witness of the Holy Spirit and our lives now become the stage upon which the drama of God is being unfolded. So think about that. To be witness. Power comes so we can be witness. All right? So we can speak the language. We should be able to speak the language of all these different people groups. We should be able to even if they're teenagers, even if there's confusion, um, blurring of identities, okay? So we're empowered to be able to do that. That's kind of good, all right? But as we do that, our witness is that we know the story and we can tell the story if you want to know some of the story, go check out the Welcome series because we do actually start going through that, all right? We tell the story, but we also yield to the Spirit so that our life is now a witness to the presence of God and the drama of God literally unfolding and just working in and through. Like My life is now a stage, right? As I yield to the Spirit of God, my life is now a stage. I know the story of God because I can step in and I can tell you about Jesus. I can tell you about Israel. I can tell you about the renovation project. I can tell you how God's desire is to reclaim what is rightfully His. I can tell you why Jesus had to die, right? Jesus, like, like, like there, there, there was already sacrificial systems in play. Sins were being forgiven, right? I'm glad that my sins are forgiven. But Malachi ends with God not having a people through which to reclaim the nations. So what does he now need? He needs a people. Guess what we are? We're the people. Okay? So why, so, so why, so why, so, 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 so why did Jesus die for your sins? To what end? So that you can now belong to his people group, the church, and now that you belong, you participate, right? You're engaged. We're family doing this together. Now he is setting to work, doing what he started at the beginning, reclaiming what is rightfully is in and through the church. That's the story. Okay? It makes no sense if that's the story for us to be excluding people when we're supposed to be speaking their language. Does that make sense? That's how our story as the church begins. That's the trajectory that comes out of empire. But also understand, like I said before, empire surrounds us and empire will shape or at least try to shape the requests and the prayers that we make to Jesus because empire will actually shape us to the point where we do ask for power, but we want power so we can lord it over people. We want power so we can exclude people. We want power so we can establish our religious rights and our religious freedoms, right? This is all currently in play. And if we don't understand that we are living in this empire, we may not even know that our requests of God are being shaped by an empire that sees power as something to use to actually lord it over people when power is actually accessible to the church, but it's not power to be lording it over people, it's actually power for people. You understand what I'm saying? And that's how the church, that's how the church begins.
I think it's kind of cool. Um, one, one cool, before we close, one cool little encounter actually happens in Acts 10 and Acts 11. Do you remember in Acts 10 where, um, if, you, if, you, if you haven't read it, it's okay, but Peter, um, he has this vision of like um, a sheep coming down from heaven, all these different animals, and God says, like, take and eat and all that kind of stuff. And obviously there was pigs and stuff because now we can eat bacon. Um, in, in, in that day... In that, in that day, nations um, had an animal that represented them. And to eat that animal meant that you were actually belonging to that nation. You were sitting down and eating with that nation. And then after that, he has um, people come and they're from Cornelius' house. And he goes with them to Cornelius' house. And he sees that the Holy Spirit's been poured out. And he starts preaching the gospel to them, right? And then after that moment, he goes back to Jerusalem and the leaders in Jerusalem start having a crack at him. They start having a go at him. Why are you going to Cornelius' house? We want to kick that sucker out. Why are you going and invited him in? And he actually, in that moment, he goes back to the reference point from Acts 11 verse 15. I think it's so interesting what he says. He says this, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. This is 10 years on. And he is getting um, questioned by the leaders in Jerusalem for what he's done. And his reference point is the same thing happened there that happened 10 years ago on the day of Pentecost. His reference point is the genesis of the church, the trajectory of the church. And when he says that, the leaders say, well, praise God. Amen. All right. What are you going to do? You're going to like, that's, that's God moving. So in 2022... I think the question for us as we step into this year is as we are faithfully improvising the story of God, we need, to, we need to know the story. We need to get a better handle on it. We've been spending a couple of years getting to know the story, but I want to get an even greater handle on it and understand that as a story comes to us, it's a story of God's desires or God's prompting. And it's, not, it's going to be a story where God does do things that are going to be inconvenient for us. We're going to ask things of God and he's going to answer our prayers. But he's going to answer our prayers in the most annoying ways. But after all, it's his desire, isn't it? And I think that God's going to ask our church in particular to really step into some people groups and actually speak their language. I think that we are positioned, I think that the heart of our church has been shaped over the last couple of years, where we are willing and we are able to actually step into different kinds of people groups and we are actually able to be master storytellers in those people groups speaking their language and also yielding to the spirit so our life is now a stage upon which the drama of God is unfolding and that is what the genesis of the church is that God lets us know right from the beginning that he is very very fluent in the language of people and if God is fluent in people well, then New Spring Church, we are also fluent in people. Is that okay? Let me pray for you. Was that a bit of a challenge? Did you learn some stuff? It's good because I've been learning some stuff. And like if I have to learn stuff, I think we all should learn stuff. So God, I just pray for this year and I pray for this group. I especially pray for our younger ones this year as there's just a formation that's going to happen. I um, pray for the leaders of our, of our teens, our young adults in particular, and Father, I just ask just for the opportunities to step into groups that um, they, never, they, they never thought they'd step into. And I ask just for the evidence of your Holy Spirit, 
that they would be able to speak the language of these people groups. And I pray that they would be masterful in their ability to, to tell your story and that they are so yielded and there's just no denying that the Holy Spirit is at work in and through their lives. Father, we pray that there would be a revival with our young people, Lord. We ask that eyes would be open, that the deceptions of this world will be found out, Lord. And Father, we pray for the other demographics in our church, that we would grow in our appreciation and knowledge of the story of God. Father, I pray that we would have a posture of learning this year, that we would have a posture of anticipating and expecting you to open up brand new doors. Father, I pray we wouldn't be a church that's intimidated but that we will be a church that sees opportunities opened by you and that we are more than willing to step in and see your desires come to fruition, Lord, not necessarily our desires. We ask that you would form us this year. In Jesus' name.